many of you know uh, a man who used to attend this church. His name was Sam Taylor. Sam recently transitioned from this church to the church we just planted in Bedford named Trinity Church of Bedford. Uh, I want to share the role Sam played in my life over the last six and a half years as we began this church. I met Sam Taylor a month before Beacon Community Church started. At that time, I was still the associate pastor of Hope Fellowship Church in Cambridge, who's our sending church. Sam showed up on August 9th, a Sunday, and I was preaching there. And we had a conversation afterwards, and I told him that I was planning a church, and he says, I think I'd like to attend that church. I'm moving to the area. The first time I met him, he's like, I, I think I'd like to go to that church. He's the consummate encourager. And you've ever had a conversation with Sam Taylor, you can't help but walk away uplifted. He is the ultimate encourager. Friends, every person needs a Sam Taylor. Encouragement is essential in the Christian life. Who do you have in your corner who prays for you, who supports you, who you go to when you're down and discouraged and demoralized? Every Christian needs a Sam Taylor. Every Christian needs an encourager. Encouragement is essential in the Christian life. Encouragement is especially essential in Christian ministry, to which all of us are called in one degree or another. This morning, as we continue our series in the book of Acts, I want to investigate with you the role of encouragement in gospel ministry. The way Paul found encouragement and the way Paul gave encouragement. So let's turn together in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 20. We're continuing a series that we began in September that will continue on until the end of August called Church on Mission. And it's our ambition to preach through the entirety of the book of Acts. And here we are starting chapter 20. Uh, you can find Acts 20 on page 929. If you're here by chance and you need a copy of the Bible, we love to give Bibles away. There are some in the entryway, uh, the third bookcase from the door. Black hardcover Bibles, just take one. You don't have to ask anybody. We'd love to just give that to you as a gift. And if you happen to, happen to be new to reading the Bible, you'll see larger numbers there. Those are chapter numbers and then a host of smaller numbers. Those, those are the verse numbers. So we're going to take a look at chapter 20, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. A man named Luke, Paul, we'll talk about him this morning. Uh, he's the author of the book of Acts. Luke writes, Acts 20, verses 1 through 16, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater, the Berian, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. 
There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so he departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So the thrust of this message is that encouragement is essential in gospel work. Encouragement is essential in gospel work. I want to highlight with you three avenues of encouragement that we see in this passage. Number one, encouragement through relationship. Encouragement through relationship. We see this in verses 1 through 7. Luke says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Perhaps you've not been with us in recent weeks. What is this uproar that Luke writes of? Well, we talked about this last week. There was an uproar in the city of Ephesus where Paul had spent some three years. The uproar was rooted in a fear of financial loss because Paul was preaching against the institution of idolatry in Ephesus, and it was thick in Ephesus. The temple of the goddess Artemis was worshipped predominantly. And a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, was an idol manufacturer, a money-making machine. He and the other tradesmen, their bottom line begins to erode away as Paul is preaching against idolatry. And so Demetrius drums up an angry mob, but he's rooted in greed and the fear of financial loss, and an uproar results. They haul some of Paul's ministry partners into the theater, large open space of dialogue in Ephesus. Paul wants to go in, but they hold him back. No, you're going to get torn apart if you go in there, Paul. And then by God's grace, he raises up this town clerk who proves to be a person of peace, who quiets the crowd. The angry mob dissolves, and Paul is left now just with the disciples in peace. Notice what Paul does right after the uproar. To whom does he turn? What does Luke tell us here in chapter 20? He sends for his disciples. He sends for Christians. Why? Because he wants to spend time with them. Notice where Paul turns in tumult. 
in upheaval, in difficulty, he turns to the body. He turns to the family of faith, the body of Christ for encouragement. This is so instructive for us. There's great encouragement when believers spend time together, no matter their circumstances, but especially in heartache, in upheaval, in persecution, and difficulty. Paul sends for the disciples. He wants to spend time with them. He needs those brothers and sisters. He finds fuel through time spent with them. Friends, if you're a part of a local church, your brothers and sisters are a gift to you. You need them. They need you. It's a mutual covenant commitment that we make to one another, to pass into each other's lives because it's easy to live in our culture as an individual, but there's no such thing as an individual Christian. We're called to be communal Christians. We need each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says it so marvelously. When one member suffers, all suffer together. When one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see what's happening there? Their lives are so intertwined, so interconnected, it's as if their spiritual nerve endings are growing into one another such that when one is hurting, they all hurt. When one is joyful, they are all joyful. That's the body of Christ. Deep interconnectedness, deep unity. Paul turns to the body in the midst of tumult. He desires to encourage them and be encouraged by them. Paul's tour of encouragement continues in verse 2. When he had gone through those regions of Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Those regions, that's Macedonia, three communities that Paul had operated in in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, churches that he planted there, people that became Christians through his ministry, he goes back through there and just strengthens them and encourages them by spending time with them. So I have a map that I want to show. You know I like maps. Maps are helpful to understanding the Bible. It's easy to get lost in these details, particularly as we think about Paul's journeys here. So this is his third journey. He had spent three years here in Ephesus. That's where the riot happened in the theater. He leaves Ephesus, and he goes to encourage Christians in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So this is where he's just spent time. And then he says, I'm going to go south into Greece, which is Corinth. He had planted a church there. So basically what Paul's doing, he had been there, he had been there on his second journey, and he just layers his visit. So he plants, but then he goes back and he encourages so this is what he's going to do. In this chapter, he's, he's taking a tour back through the churches that he's planted. And then Luke's going to tell us he wanted to sail to Syria, but because a plot was found out that they were going to take him by boat, he's decided to go back by land and just retrace his steps, encouraging these brothers and sisters all the way. So this is what he's doing. He's going around the horseshoe and comes back on the horseshoe, encouraging Christians as he goes. So that's, that's, that's what he's doing. He's visiting these places that he's planted churches, established Christians, and now he's strengthening them, encouraging them by doubling back and visiting them again. So that's his practice. He plants churches, and then he circles back, and he encourages those churches. Instructive for us is you walk alongside people in your life, perhaps a person that you get to share the gospel with, and by God's grace, they come to believe what is essential for that new believer? 
You need to circle back and spend time with them again and again and again and pour into them. That's how we're fortified in the faith. Not just make a convert and move on. No, share the gospel. God converts and spend time with them and fortify them and strengthen them. It's the long work over a lot of time. Encouragement is essential for Christians, especially fledgling new ones and churches as well. This is where Sam Taylor proved to be a gift to me. I had never been a lead pastor before starting this church with a group of people. I thought I knew what I was doing, but if you'd asked me in my heart of hearts, I was scared to death. I'd never done that before. I needed an encourager, someone in my corner who could pray for me. Sam had been a pastor and a missionary. He knew the ropes. He'd call me on the phone. He'd visit me after a sermon that maybe I felt like was a bomb, and he'd just say, keep going, pastor. Keep serving, pastor. He's an encourager. Encouragement is essential in the Christian life. Encouragement is essential in gospel ministry. Next, Paul arrives in Greece, that is Corinth. He had planted a church there. And we're told he spends three months in Corinth. And a plot was made against him by the Jews. As he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return by land through Macedonia. So he wants to set sail, but evidently there's this plot to ambush him at the port. So he doesn't go by boat. He just goes by land, and he just goes back up that horseshoe to the places he had just been. He spends three months in Corinth. This is where he writes the letter to the Romans, roughly 57 AD. But while he's there in those three months, he writes the letter to the Romans. He's encouraging Christians everywhere he goes. That's his heartbeat, to visit, revisit, and encourage them. He's encouraging Christians as he visits, yet he also is encouraged himself by their time together. Notice what we see next. We see all these names of people and the places they're from. So, so Pater, the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, that's in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. The Asians, that means the Ephesians. So Tychicus and Trophimus, these were from the city of Ephesus. What we see here is a collection of people from the places that, uh, that Paul planted churches. So he's actually taking people from each of those churches, and they're traveling with him. Why? Well, for encouragement, certainly. But what Paul's doing, one of his primary motivators in going back to Jerusalem is to take an offering. There are destitute Christians in Jerusalem, and Paul's heart is to gather up an offering from all these churches throughout the Greco-Roman world that he was planting to gather from them and to deliver it to the destitute Christians in Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Well, it's just an act of grace and generosity, but it's also a means of unity. Because we've talked about in Acts the differentiation or the potential division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. What better way to speak unity by gathering an offering from all these Gentile churches to the Jews who've become Christians in Jerusalem? So it's a means of generosity. It's also a means of unity. So Paul's collecting this offering, but he doesn't just say, hey, give me the money and I'll take it. He says, no, 
give me the money and send a representative from your church with me. He does this because there's protection in doing that. There's more people, so it's a protection against robbery and it's financial propriety for Paul. Credibility for him. He's not pocketing money. He's got people from those churches that gave coming with him, accounting for the money. That's a wise practice for any pastor to surround people who do the books. We read of this collection for the saints in Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let me read this for you. Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, Corinthians, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul's saying, set aside some money for the Christians in Jerusalem. They're destitute. Do it the first day of the week before you spend all your money. That's a good practice. Tithe first and trust God to supply your needs throughout the week. Set aside some at the first so, there's, so, it's, so it's carved out and there. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. See what's Paul saying? Send me some men who will come with me with your gift. Accountability encouragement and protection. That's what he's doing. That's why these men are listed here. Always ask why when you read the Bible. Why are these people from these places? They're from all the churches that Paul planted, all the churches that contributed to this offering. They're going with Paul. The significance of relationship. The significance of community. What do we find in community? Encouragement, accountability, protection, that's why Paul surrounded himself with people. Beware the Lone Ranger Christian. Because that's how the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, how do predators hunt? Do they go right into the pack and get the strong ones? No. They pick off the stragglers, the lame ones that are moved from the pack. That's how the devil works. We are wisest and healthiest in the pack, in the flock. When you isolate yourself from the flock, beware. It's dangerous. You're protected in the body, protected in the pack. Paul surrounds himself. We learn next that Luke is actually traveling with Paul at this point. Verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Luke is an eyewitness of these accounts that we're reading. He didn't travel with Paul throughout the entirety of his journeys, but here he was with Paul. He's an eyewitness. So they make it to Troas, which is a major Aegean port in the northwest portion of Asia, just south of the ancient city of Troy. You may be familiar with the city of Troy. It was a primary port for ships going to and from Macedonia. And so while we're in Troas, we find an unusual event that leads to great encouragement. In Troas, a rather bizarre event happens, but it leads to great encouragement. So first we see encouragement through relationship. A second avenue of encouragement is encouragement through resurrection. That's what we see in this account. Encouragement through resurrection. Let's look together at this account, verses 7 through 12. 
On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. First day of the week, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day. So what do we see here? We see evidence of the early church gathering on the Lord's Day, gathering on Sunday as a normal part of their practice to break bread, that's to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and to receive the word preached. Paul was leaving the next day, so evidently he tried to cram too much into his sermon, didn't he? He knows he's leaving, he's got a lot to say, and he goes on and on and on. Perhaps you've felt like that in my sermon sometimes. This guy's going on and on. And then, uh-oh, midnight comes. This cannot have a good outcome. There were many lamps in the upper room, verse 8 where we were gathered together, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So lamps, don't think of these sconces on the side here. Think of a torch that's burning fuel and putting out heat on the third floor. So it's hot, and there are fumes, and it's likely what Eutychus does. He's like, I need an open window. I need some air. So he goes over to the open window that didn't have a screen. And he falls into this deep, deep sleep, and now it's any preacher's worst nightmare. He goes out the window, falls three stories, and dies. He fell down from the third story, verse 8, and he was taken up dead, verse 9. Luke couldn't be clearer. Eutychus is dead. This is not like a resuscitation. This will be a resurrection. He falls out of the window, and he dies. Paul coolly goes down there, and he bends over him. Verse 10, taking him in his arms, he embraces him and says, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. He is alive. This harkens back to Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, where they resurrect young boys who had died by embracing them, bending over them, breathing life back into them by God's grace. This is a resurrection, and it brings great encouragement to this group of people. Verse 11, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while. Sermon continued. He spoke until daybreak and so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That word comforted is the same word encouraged. It's three times in this passage. That's why we're nailing this. This is all about encouragement. The resurrection of this young boy, Eutychus, brought great encouragement. They saw a picture of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ that night when Eutychus falls out of the window. God raises him back up from the dead. Why does Luke include this episode? It's in here for the purpose of encouragement. There is no greater encouragement in life than the reality of the resurrection. All the resurrection accounts in the Bible point to the greatest resurrection, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's resurrection is called a first fruits, meaning many more are to come. Just like the first fruits of a harvest, there's more harvest to come. 
So all who believe in Christ will too be resurrected. And the more you think about Christ's resurrection power in history and in the future of your life, if you're a believer in Christ, the more encouraged and hopeful you will be in your life. I'm convinced that we as Christians live impotent lives because we're not focusing on resurrection power. Christ defeated death through his resurrection. You see, the resurrection is the great reversal of everything broken. Everything sad will come undone because of Christ's resurrection. It is going to happen. He's going to come again and restore all things. It's the great reversal. And Jesus' resurrection is the down payment, money down, that the greater reversal is coming. It's money down. It's the assuring proof. So because Christ was raised, we too will be raised. Everything sad will become untrue. It provides hope for us in times like now. Seeing what we saw, a shooting in Buffalo, it's just awful. What do we do with that? We cling to Christ. We cling to Christ who will one day make everything sad come untrue. He will reverse it all. Do you believe that? Live in the power and the hope of the resurrection. If you're not a Christian, you should want the resurrection to be true because the resurrection is the assuring proof that all the brokenness that you experience in your life will be undone. You should want the resurrection to be true, and it is true. Investigate it. Investigate the details of the empty tomb, the empowerment of cowardly disciples to become courageous as lions overnight. How? Because they saw the resurrected Lord. Evidence for the resurrection is abounding. Study it. We should want it to be true. And if you are a Christian, are you living in daily power based on the resurrection? Will we trust in Jesus Christ who died and overcame the grave by his resurrection? There is no greater encouragement than the reality of the resurrection. So in this passage, we see encouragement through relationship. We see encouragement through resurrection. Thirdly and finally, we see encouragement through resources. Encouragement through resources. Let's take a look at verses 13 through 16. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. One more time on the map. All these names... Paul was in Troas, that's where Eutychus fell out of the window and was resurrected. And then Paul jumps on, on land, and the others go by boat, and they meet at Asos. They go to Mytilene, Chios, Samos, to Miletus, just south of Ephesus. So he's just kind of following this kind of coastal tour right here. He's ultimately going to head back to Jerusalem. But he stops here at Miletus. He sails past Ephesus for a reason. Why does he do this? He spent three years there. You would think he'd want to spend all kinds of time in Ephesus. He does, but he's crunched for time. 
So he goes just south, and he calls the elders because he can encourage a smaller group of elders who will then take his encouragement up to the church. If he stays in Ephesus, he's going to be there for weeks. There's so many people and so many relationships. So he doesn't just snub them. He's like, "Ah, I've I've got to encourage them some way. But he just goes south, and he calls the elders down to him. And the rest of Acts chapter 20 speaks of his message to the Ephesian elders. We'll talk about that next week. He's torn between two encouragements, you see. He wants to encourage the Ephesian Christians, but he knows he needs to get to Jerusalem. Why? Because he has an offering for the Christians who are destitute and poor in Jerusalem. So he wants to encourage the Ephesians, but he knows he's, he's got to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost because that's when everybody gathers. It's one of the high holidays. It's the opportunity to see as many people there as possible. So he's kind of working with this clock. I want to spend some time with them, but I got to get to Jerusalem. He has resources collected from these churches that he wants to give to the Christians in Jerusalem. That's why I say encouragement through resources. What's driving Paul to get to Jerusalem? He's got something that he wants to give destitute Christians. So don't miss this. The critical role of resources in encouraging others. We know that we can encourage each other through time spent together, through shared meals, through praying, through listening. But make no mistake, we encourage each other through our material possessions. What Aaron Gray said, we are dead serious about that. This is the body of Christ, and we have needs. And the local church has been designed by God to be a supplier of people's needs. We're very serious about this. We have a large amount of money in a, in a benevolence fund. We allocate that each year. Why? That's what we're supposed to do, is to care for God's people and community needs as well. So if you have a need, please tell us we want to help you. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for our sake, that through his poverty we might become rich. We're serious about that. You encourage people through resources spent on them. So can I ask you, how do you view your resources? Do you hold them with a white-knuckle grip? Or do you have them with open hands? God desires to give to us that we might give to others. No white-knuckle grip, but open hands. Encouragement is essential in gospel work. Encouragement through relationship encouragement through resurrection, and encouragement through resources. Do you realize that encouragement reveals the heart of God, who is the consummate, the ultimate encourager? Can I ask you, in your heart of hearts, what is your view of God? Do you believe that God desires to encourage you? Do you believe that God can encourage you better than any living being. Most of us sometimes fall into this false thinking, thinking that God is sort of this miserly curmudgeon that doesn't want to come alongside us, who's waiting for us to misstep. That is not the heart of God. God is an encourager. He is for you. Do you believe that? He is for you. And yes, him being for you means that he will discipline you and correct you, Like any good father will correct his son or daughter if they're headed to destruction. And it seems mean in the moment, but it's merciful in the long run. So yes, he corrects us. He is for us. He loves us. Do you believe that? God loves 
each and every one of you. And he's demonstrated the pinnacle of his love by sending his son Jesus to us to die the death we deserve to die, to rise again, giving us forgiveness and eternal life. God is your ultimate encourager. He is for you, and we know this through the cross and the resurrection. Be encouraged today. See the heart of God for you as displayed through his word. And having been encouraged, seek to encourage others. Like our heavenly father, like his sons and daughters. Having been encouraged, go and do likewise to a church and to a watching world in need of encouragement. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time spending it together as a community. God, we pray that you would empower us to harness the richness of the body of Christ. We need each other. Forgive us for seeking to live independently, isolated from one another. Help us to be honest with each other, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds to share material resources as we have need. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the hope and the power of the resurrection, our greatest source of encouragement. And so I pray for some who are undecided on that great truth, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would cause them to move past the threshold of faith, trusting in you, the crucified and resurrected Lord, for their salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.